Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Dahlia Muller, author of Cuban Emigres and Independence in the 19th Century Gulf World, just out with UNC Press. This book tells the little-known stories of Cuban political exiles and refugees in the 19th century who traveled to Mexico and there pursued and extended anti-colonial struggles. It'll change the way you think about the Cuban wars of independence, adding Mexico to the mix and expanding the geography of war throughout the Gulf region. Hi, Dahlia. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Alejandra. So you've written this marvelous book that asks us to rearrange a lot of what we know about 19th century and independence and the Cuban Wars of Independence. And one of the main ways you're asking us to, to sort of think about rearranging is geographically. So I wonder if mm-hmm. we could start by um, you talking a little bit about what you mean by Gulf World. Gulf World is in your, the, the notion of Gulf World is in the title already. Mm-hmm. And so um, mm-hmm. I was hoping you could sketch out what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Gulf World, as, as I define it, is the space in and in between Mexico, the United States and Cuba. Uh, and so it's a space that's been interconnected by all kinds of travelers from the 1500s forward. But I would say that the emergence of what I'm calling a world occurs across the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, so thinking back to the beginning, as it were, from the 1490s through the 1600s, the lands bordering the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean were referred to at times as an American Mediterranean, right? One at that time dominated by the Spanish um, but the British and the French, of course, picked away bits and pieces of Spain's vast empire. The French claim Haiti, the British Jamaica, New Orleans changed hands a couple times, right, and so on and so on. Um, and so during the 17th and 18th century, um, we're sort of familiar with the stories of pirates, runaway slaves, contraband traders, right, among others, um, who lived on or moved between um, what we might think of as undiscovered or barely claimed islands, caves, sections of coast, right, And so for me, these people began to give shape to a world that was marked by subversive crossings, right, through their habit, especially their habit of disregarding imperial borders. Um, And so the Gulf of Mexico, um, as a kind of body of water, a place, right, is is and has always been intimately connected to the Caribbean, right? It's, of course, also the site of pirate hideaways, runaway slave settlements, as well as a home base for many a smuggler, right? But it was somewhere between the U.S.-American Revolution and the Latin American Independence Wars that spanned the turn of the 19th century, right, that we can see a distinct space emerging um, that I think we can call the Gulf World, right, a place that's still connected to the Caribbean, but is also um, unto itself. And so there are three things that I think can sort of identify, um, if if not identify the shift that sort of... um, give me reason to to sort of mark this shift, right? Um, So the shifting geopolitics play a role, right? The fledgling republics of the United States and Mexico, right, are all of a sudden players in the scene, you know, by the early 19th century, 
are concerned about defense and trade in the Gulf space, right? At the same time, Spain is still controlling Cuba and is also deciding what sort of relationships to nurture with its former colony, Mexico, right, and the United States. Um, so there's an important geopolitical shift that gives shape. Um, at the same time, of course, we have the advent of steamship technology, uh, um, and uh, which has something to do with something important to do with integrating this world, right? So all manner of travelers from businessmen to wartime refugees now move faster and in new ways between interlinked ports that connect Cuba, Mexico, and the U.S. And I think finally I would mention labor migrations, right, which in the mid-19th century also reinforce these connections. Um, the most clear case um, is the are the thousands of Cuban cigar workers that travel back and forth between Cuba and the United States, but also sometimes Mexico as well. So before we get into the the body of the book, I wanted to ask you about one of your sources. And Mm -hmm. one of the major sources that you use is the ANARC. That's the acronym Mm -hmm. for the National Association of Cuban Revolutionary Emigres. And it seems like a very rich source. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you how you came across it, what struck you about it, and was there a moment when you realized looking at it that, that here was your book? Yeah, that's good. It starts with a funny story. Um, So... I was in Cuba, I'm probably, I want to say maybe 23 or 24, you know, very, very green to research and whatnot. Um, and I remember uh, a colleague, a, a fabulous historian who's now a, a become a colleague, mentor, and of course, fellow Cubanist, Rebecca Scott, um, sort of made an offhand reference to the association to me in the archive, sort of really early in the process. Um, and I think I filed it away for a bit, and then I came back around to it. Um, and so Rebecca Scott had been tracking down um, a number of historical figures, and she had thought the association might be helpful. Um, but the problem with the association's papers, right, is that they're scattered, as I would come to discover. So <clears throat> there are two files um, in the registry of associations that pertain to to this association. But then the individual member applications um, were archived in, in a different location altogether, and then were filed alphabetically, right? So if you didn't know who you were looking for, it was essentially a lost cause, right? Rebecca Scott was lucky because she knew who she was looking for. Um, So luckily I figured out that the files uh, did correspond for the most part uh, to particular boxes, and I began pulling those, not knowing what I'd find. Um, And in order to uh, separate the files for Cubans traveling to Mexico, or Mexico and the United States, which is what I was looking for, I had to pull essentially all the files that appeared to include these application documents. Um, but again, there was no guide to this at all. So it was, um, you know, it was the, the, the sort of guidance of a, of a superior mentor and fabulous historian, right? It was, a, it was a comment that kind of set me on the path. And then I just sort of dug and dug until, until I was able to sort of piece, this to, piece these two parts together. Um, so a lot of things struck me about the source, right? First, there are three countries that are most represented in, in this body of documents. In other words, in especially the application files, um, which number upward of a thousand, right? And they're United, the United States, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic, right? So although Cubans, Cuban exiles were found all over the hemisphere and in Europe, right? These three countries are the ones that are most represented. Um, so, I mean, I hope, again, since I think it's such a rich, rich source, I hope a young student will come along and take on the whole collection, right, and do a kind of really neat study that would sort of really look comparatively at, these, at the three different kind of countries um, and, and experiences of the emigres or exiles across all three. 
Um, so second, the source is, is in and of itself incredibly rich, right? Each application includes a form as well as supporting documentation, right? The form records the place of origin of the emigre, the point of departure, the place of arrival, the years of both departure and return, names of parents, in some cases spouses, and at least a short explanation of revolutionary involvement both in and outside Cuba at times, right? And then to go with that, the supporting documents include everything from recommendation letters um, to receipts to news clippings, et cetera, et cetera, right? You sort of don't know what you'll get. One file will be 20 or 30 pages long and incredibly rich. Another might be more schematic. But taken together, it's sort of an incredibly rich a rich source, Um you know, some of the limitations became clear to me really quickly, too, um, which is the, the, um, the, which pointed to the fact that it, the INERC was troubling both an inclusive and exclusive in association, much like its predecessor, which was the Cuban Revolutionary Party. Um, and so among the 200 files that I looked at very closely, only four um, were files that were submitted by, by women, right, for example. But you know, we know that women participated in, in rather incredible ways um, in the exile communities, uh, especially in Mexico and the United States, but but everywhere, right? So this this seems to belie, right, the, the numbers of, of, of women that we know were involved in the struggle. And I'd say the same is true with uh, for Cubans of color, Afro-Cubans, who are uh, far, are, you know, nearly unre- non, unrepresented in the anarch files, um, but of course were essential and critical, not only to the revolutionary struggle in Cuba, but also to the revolutionary struggle, um, in exile. Um, so, you know, one has to work with an incredibly rich source, but then of course recognize its limitations and then find, um, as many sources as possible to sort of complement and compensate for those limitations, which is, which is what I did. Um, but your last part of the question about when I realized it was sort of the sign of the book, I, uh, you know, it, it was sort of this this kind of troubled relationship. And so it's sort of a difficult source to work with. Um, I had, you know, massive Excel files, right, to try to systematize all of this data and, and so forth. And it took me it took me a long time. I think I really sort of realized it um, uh, into the writing process, right, that this was really the kind of um, the, the center of, of of this work. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I'm not surprised at all that Rebecca Scott would be behind <laughs> <laughs> the story of a wonderful right. source like this. It's just mm-hmm. very fitting. Um, I also yeah, really did appreciate the way that you both brought out the richness of the source, but really sort of were conscious and aware of and and very explicit about the limitations of the source, right? right? And so where did you find, where did you find the, 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 the sources for the kinds of people that were left out of this association? Yeah, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, uh, in part, is also lucky. The 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 two big collections I work with were obviously the the Anurk files, and then also the Cuban Revolutionary Party archive, which is massive and, of course, very well organized. To, you know, by contrast, um, but there are and of course, through the the Cuban Revolutionary Party archive, right, you can see the kind of the the, the widest expanse, right, of this diaspora community, right. So Cubans extending from, you know, I found a couple in up here in Buffalo, you know, and I found them down in the northern mining re- regions of Chile, right. So you can kind of see this really big picture. But in this archive, I was also able to find some very specific materials about Mexico, um, including the very detailed records of one individual. 
um, Cuban club in Veracruz that ran across all four years of the war, right, which is an incredibly rich source. Um, I used uh, Cuban and Mexican newspapers. Newspapers were a really surprising source, mainly because Cubans and a lot of their Mexican affiliates were using the newspapers as a means of communication on us mm -hmm. often. So instead of just sort of a space of political debate, you know, Cuban club uh, presidents would include ads in the newspaper because they knew what the circulation of the paper would be. And they would say, you know, our, you know, we ha our meeting time is changing from Monday to Tuesday, from this hour to this hour, right? So this kind of really mundane kind of daily communications, right? And so there's where we can kind of, we find some unexpected voices, right? And and it's in this kind of smaller, um, you know, ads and announcements kinds of areas of the newspaper, if you're kind of paying attention to that. So I have just a, a kind of wealth of material um, that is in the press, um, but also consular records, right? The Spanish were in Mexico constantly spying on the Cubans and reporting on what, you know, they were infiltrating organizations, reporting what they were seeing in these individual uh, Cuban club gatherings and so forth. So that turned out to be uh, consular records as spy records, right, turned out to be a really rich source. And then finally, um, also correspondence, especially women. So the women emerge um, uh, who don't appear in the Anurk emerge as uh, as people who are corresponding um, and their correspondence is, is captured within the Cuban Revolutionary Party, right? So I have, while I only have only four inert files, right, I have um, anywhere from one to 10 letters uh, by, by, you know, about 10 to 12 uh, independent women, right? Only two of whom are the same, are, are two that were also in the inert files, right? So there, it's a, still a small sample, but I have, you know, I've been able to have sort of access to, to, to them through, through correspondence, right, which, again, is, is generally also can be rare under these circumstances. So um, those are some of the ways. Yeah. So um, the first part of the book is concerned with the long history of Cuba-Mexico exchanges, and you make a very compelling case for those. Um, we're so much more familiar with the Cuba-U.S. story. And I'm wondering why you think the Cuba-Mexico connection has really been ignored historiographically. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I think we've just been far too caught up in what, you know, Luis Perez Jr. calls the quote-unquote ties of singular intimacy between mm -hmm. the U.S. and Cuba, right? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, we've been kind of blinded by this. So, I mean, yes, the United States and Cuba have a long, intimate, powerful, and deeply problematic relationship. Um, but I suggest that by triangulating between Mexico, Cuba, and the United States, right, we not only gain a new perspective on um, 19th and 20th century history in the region, right, but the move also gives us a new vantage point on U.S.-Cuban relations as well, right, one that we're not familiar with. Um, and so I like to think that breaking away from US, the U.S.-Cuba binary is a way, in fact, to sort of decolonize knowledge production, right? <laughs> Um, because it's important to recognize the United States is not uh, is not the sort of only actor that defined Cuba's relationship to the world pre-Castro, right? Um, and so Cuban-Mexican uh, relations, especially political, diplomatic, and cultural, are far older and just as strong, if not stronger, right, than relations between Cuba and the United States. And so what happens if we break up that binary, right? We take a step back, we widen our optic, and we look again, right? And that is essentially, you know, the core of what I've tried to do in this book. So another piece of the of what happens is this book and what most what most of the people in the book are doing is really conducting the war from afar in exile. Mm -hmm. So um, 
why were people doing this? What did they think they were doing? And how many different kinds of groups of people were contributing to the war effort? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the neat, one of the neatest parts of, of the Cuban story as I sort of discovered it as it unfolded for me in the process, right? Um, so Cuba's independence war extended over 30 years, right? It's sort of an on-again, off-again struggle. It took a very long time. Um, and during the periods of acute war, thousands of refugees and exiles fled the island. Um, and so you have the 10 years war at the beginning of this 30, war peri- 30, 30 year period, and then you have the war of Cuban independence at the very end. So you have sort of two major exoduses, right? But the first, the, the first set of refugees that, that go out, you know, a, a, a number of them do return, but many of them also remain in exile and they form the sort of these kind of base communities that are then reinforced by successive waves. Of, of, of migrants, right? Um, and so people fleeing for their lives made their ways to nearby islands and mainland ports, New Orleans, Veracruz, Port-au-Prince, Kingston, Tampa, Key West, right? Um, and as I said, even though it falls outside the purview of this book, right, you know, exactly how those Cubans got to the northern mining region of Chile is something that will just forever itch, <laughs> you know, be an itch that I will be desperately trying to scratch, trying to figure out how that happened and sort of what they were up to. Um, but I couldn't bother myself with sort of with that kind of digging while I was producing this book. Um, but back in the Gulf and the Caribbean, then these these waves, as I said, kind of reinforced uh, each other. And, and before you know it, right, by the 1890s, we've got longstanding Cuban migrant communities throughout the region, right, that remain both connected to home, um, but were and that remain connected to home and that were also these became these spaces of politicization and ultimately these hotbeds of revolutionary um, sentiment. Right. And so you have this potent force aboard ab- abroad and then you add to the fact to this, the fact that Cuba is an island, right? And so the only way for Cuban rebels during the wars to get arms was by wrenching them from the cold, dead fingers of Spanish foes, right? (laughs) Or, you know, receiving shipments from abroad, right? There's really no other way. So so the port cities of the Gulf World and the Caribbean then become these key sites for organizing the transport of arms and rebels to Cuba, right? And so in this context, when we think about Castro's departure from Mexico on the Granma in 1956, right, when he brought when he initiated the Cuban Revolution, was in fact part of this 100-year-old Cuban tradition that bound precisely Cuba, Mexico, and the United States together in unique ways, right? So there's a sort of this, this opportunity that I think my book opens up to kind of, to kind of help us kind of rethink um, sort of the, the later 20th century connections as well. Right, not um, an accident that things were going back and forth. Right, right, exactly. It shouldn't seem out of the blue, it only seem out of the blue again, if you're locked into this that sort of US Cuba binary. Mm-hmm. And so then you might wonder, well, what was Castro doing in Mexico, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in fact, that's a, a much longer story, I, I would argue. So the three main cities that you talk about in the book are Veracruz, Merida, and Mexico City. And you walk us through uh, some of the differences, which are really interesting, I think, sort of demographically and socioeconomically. Um, mm-hmm. But in the end, the book rests on Veracruz a little bit more than the others, mm-hmm. I think. So what's distinctive about Veracruz and what did you find there that you wanted to, to write about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what distinguishes Veracruz perhaps is the way in which it formed part of the Gulf world, I guess, in contradistinction to the other two um, places that I focus on. Right. So, I mean, Veracruz was 
one of the major ports of, of call and commerce in the region, obviously at the time, right? Um, and in fact, I'd say that the route um, between New Orleans, Havana, and Veracruz, so if you envision it as a triangle on the map, right, is the kind of triangular backbone of the Gulf world, right? Um, and other ports like Campeche and also Progreso in Mexico, right, were very important and, and transited as well, but they don't outdo Veracruz, right? So Veracruz just simply is a center. And of course, this is, you know, an age-old relationship, right, between Havana and Veracruz that extends back to the earliest days of the Spanish conquest, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Veracruz is just always a city that has had this kind of this kind of old and long-standing connection to Cuba, um, and especially through, not limited to, but especially through the connection with Havana. Um, and so, um, you know, Veracruz stood out to me for all those reasons, but also it, it simply was home to the largest number of Cubans, right? I mean, the the largest number of Cubans in my study were departing Havana, whether they were from Havana or not, although the majority were were from Havana and the surrounding kind of hinterlands right, areas, right? But um, uh, were leaving Havana and they were they were establishing themselves and and making lives in Veracruz. So it was the most robust, most politically active um, community of Cuban emigres in Mexico, which is, you know, which is why it has a place. But I believe that Merida and and Mexico have, um, are are different and important in different ways, right? Mexico city, for example, I make the claim or, or I make the argument is, is, is perhaps even more critical when we talk about the Mexican solidarity movement with Cuba, right? Mexico city was the home to a number of, um, pro-Cuban newspapers that were able to network nationally in in really interesting uh, ways, right? That had very, very deep ties to newspapers in Veracruz as well. Um, but but a lot of the kind of political questions and, and diplomatic issues kind of being hammered out in, in fairly intense ways in the streets, you know, in the halls of Congress and the streets of Mexico City. Um, and so Mexico th- City becomes a theater when we move a little bit in the book from kind of embedded sort of social history to the kind of political diplomatic history, um, which which we see become more central towards the end of the book. Right. And I want to get to that because it's a really fascinating story of the kind of rise and fall of mm-hmm. um, solidarities. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about the solidarity clubs, which mm-hmm. there seem to be hundreds of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all forming in different ways in different places. But you argue, uh, for the most part, that they were both inclusive and exclusive, as you say. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how that fits into what we know about notions of Cuban citizenship? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the clubs are, are super interesting. And I should add that going thinking back to the inert source base, right, is that one of the things that all of the applicants did is that they enumerated, right, they listed the clubs that they belonged to, right, which allowed me to, to, to trace club affiliation. And that was really, really valuable. Um, so the clubs, the these Cuban political clubs were voluntary associations, right? They're the base units of the Cuban Revolutionary Party, as I had mentioned before. Um, and that party was a party that was established in exile, right? It was established, it's an international political party. It was founded in exile in 1892. Um, and part of the mission of the organization was precisely to harness the energies of Cuba's vast exile communities, right? So revolutionary leaders recognized the, the, the size and significance of these communities and sought to organize them as an auxiliary force of sorts to support the war effort in Cuba, 
right? So the party leader and other top representatives within the civilian and military wings of the, of, the, of the movement welcomed all Cubans to the fold of the party, right? The more, the better, right? They envisioned kind of membership in the Cuban national community as fundamentally inclusive. Cubans, regardless of race, class, or gender, could join these clubs, um, which were run for the most part at the base level democratically, right? And the, the general idea was that the party, uh, from its base level organizations to its top leaders, was supposed to be uh, run democratically, and uh, top leaders were meant to be elected through democratic pro- uh, processes. Of course, this fell apart. But um, but theoretically, then, you know, uh, black Cubans, white Cubans, men, women, uh, you know, rich and poor could participate in these clubs and cast a vote, right? Um, so... The, so then we, we also have so and then when we're looking at the kind of composition of the base level clubs, right, we have some that are composed only of women. I found um, even more fascinating the kind of cross gender clubs. We have ones that are that are you know, where the membership is split between women and men. Um, also clubs that are that seem to be just sort of distinctly Afro-Cuban, right, mostly Afro-Cuban members, as well as those that are uh, composed of Cubans of color and white Cubans as well together right, that are integrated so it looks great, right? But when you peel back the surface a bit, right, it becomes evident that not all of these Cubans are participating, that are participating in the struggle from exile were participating in equal ways or, or their, that their participation was valued equally, right? And so you start to kind of read between the lines. You can kind of see some of the details here. In larger cities, for example, um, where there were more robust party structures, right? There weren't only base clubs, but there was another level of organization that was called um, a, a kind of superior council. And so in these bigger cities, a woman's club would be, was forced to, ex- to elect a male representative who would advocate for that club in the superior council, right? So women were not allowed into the superior council. Um, this dynamic didn't play out in the smaller cities where there was no superior council, right? Uh, and so that gets a little, it's sort of interesting to kind of compare. Um, and the clubs presided over by Cubans of color or whose membership was broadly non-white uh, tend to appear less often among the ranks of the most important and influential clubs, like from one locale to the next, right? We can see um, the, the, the sort of the racial inequalities evolving there, kind of pay attention to how disputes are resolved, um, uh, decisions made, et cetera, at the, at the level of both the base level clubs, but then the organizations that, um, that are the, the, the councils that then report to the party headquarters, Right. And then all of this exclusion that you find, uh, you know, just barely underneath the surface. Right. Um, you know, comes out in full relief in the anarch membership, kind of going back to that documentary source. Right. Where Cubans of color and women are notably absent. Right. Which provides really clear proof that those practices of exclusion were carried home after the war and then that they shaped the very association that was established in Havana in the early 20th century to preserve the legacy and the history of these precisely these Cuban emigrations. Right. And there's a whole rewriting of history that happens, right, as the association will sponsor competitions to write the history of the emigrations, right? Um, And so, you know, there we see the exclusions quite marked as well. It's really fascinating to think about the re-establishment of these institutions that in some ways reproduces Cuban society, Mm -hmm. right, as refracted Mm -hmm. through exile. It's really super interesting. Um, so, okay, so with regards to Mexico's reaction to the Cuban wars, right, because there were lots of people who were at, who were requesting Mexican support, etc. Um, that's where the book 
splits in two in really interesting ways, because on the one hand, you have the diplomatic and state level policies. And then Mm -hmm. on the other hand, you have popular sentiment, which seem really quite distinct. And Mm -hmm. um, you make the argument, and I uh, buy it, that uh, (laughs) you can't really think of one without the other. If you just thought about one, Mm -hmm. you really would miss an important part of the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. can you can you walk us through that a little bit? What were the differences? What were the sort of politics at the diplomatic level? And how did those differ from the popular street level politics? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, definitely, if we stick with the diplomatic and state level politics, or I would argue, conversely, you know, we keep our ear only to the streets, right? We're going to miss critical elements of the story. Um, So I'm very glad that you you buy that, that you saw that, because that was critical. Um, But so uh, perhaps most importantly, I think we miss, you know, as you said, right, this clear connection between what what sometimes are sort of supposedly disconnected realms, right? Um, and so many of the people that are generating popular support for the Cuban cause in Mexico, and that's Mexicans and Cubans alike, um, right, uh, that are doing so outside of the halls in Congress, right, and this is especially students and journalists, were quite bluntly trying to influence high politics and diplomacy, right? They had a v- very clear goals. Um, you know, at the same time, the politicians uh, that I, that I explore, right, were annoyed by and sought to repress popular solidarity with the, uh, the movement for Cuba Libre as, as the independence cause was known, right? Because they believe that the, re- um, the reports in the press, right, the upheaval in the streets, the bar fights, you know, all threaten Mexico's own political stability. And the fact is that the Cuban question kind of cut to, uh, cut to the core in Mexico because it was precisely at this time right, that the state manufactured a cult around the nation's own independence era heroes. And so here come the Cubans saying, well, we're fighting for the same thing you fought for. You know, you ought to support us. And the Mexican state essentially says no, right? And so the Cuban Solidarity Movement drew attention to these contradictions. And um, so high-level politics around the question then uh, began to hinge on discrediting the arguments upheld by critical and dissenting journalists, right? So um, so politicians began to have to answer to the kinds of critiques that the journalists, the kinds of ex- uh, contradictions that the journalists were exposing, mm. right? Meanwhile, the journalists and others then leveraged the Cuban question by embedding it into their own struggle for democracy in Mexico, right? So that's why I say cut to the core, Cuba was never only Cuba, right? Which became my key to the answer of why Cuba was so important in so many places, Right. Um, and not just Mexico, but in many, many places, but in Mexico in particular, um, you know, at a time of high repression, right, where the Porfirian dictatorship is really consolidating itself, you know, here was a space for journalists and other dissenters to somewhat more safely launch some pretty heavy duty uh, critiques against the government. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting to sort of start to wrap your head around that dynamic. And I guess my next question is related to that. So if you add... Mexico into the mix between Spain, the U.S., and Cuba, it's, it's kind of like adding a fourth child to a family, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> creates chaos, yeah. wonderful <laughs> chaos, but chaos. Um, so how did, how did Mexico respond to all of these? And how was Mexico kind of stuck in the middle? And yeah. what did they think they were doing with regards to the U.S. and with regards to Spain? I mean, if you if you really expand the frame, you can see how complicated their position really was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, so just to reiterate, right, then the Cuban question is about 
um, you know, something else in Mexico, right? It's, it's not only about this kind of, um, you know, this kind of solidarity with Cuba that's just, well, you know, we should be in solidarity with our Cuban brothers, which is a lot of the discourse. But again, when you dig below the surface, you start to be able to, you know, you want to find out why that's just not good enough. Like what is really going on here? Um, and so, um, so, so again, I argue that there's something about um, uh, Mexico's sort of emergent national sense of self that is at core here, right? So Mexico imagines itself, you know, as uh, a nation that was stable, that was modern, right, that was on its well on its way to joining, you know, civilized Western nations, right? The stability brought by the Porfirian dictatorship had brought all of this prosperity. And so, um, so Mexico then in this context, right, um, it's sort of sorting out who it is or what it is, right, trying to define that. Um, at the same time, it's it's the, the Cuban question sort of thrusts it into this kind of middle position between Spain and the United States, and it then has to sort of figure out um, how to negotiate its its relations with, with both or all three here. Um, so Mexico's, the, the sort of simplest way to say it is Mexico's relationship with Spain at the time is marked by this historic anti-colonial and I would argue sort of still simmering resentment, right? This anti-colonial resentment that is still simmering, which is then covered over by this kind of newfound love and appreciation for the cultural heritage that, uh, that, uh, that bound Mexico to its former colonial master, right? So you have these, these two things in tension um, within Mexico's own relationship to Spain. So let's hold that thought for a minute. On the other hand, you've got Mexico, on the other hand, sort of Mexico admired, uh, Mexico, Mexicans, mostly statesmen here, right, admired the United States for its economic and technological progress, right, um, and perhaps select elements of its culture, but then worried about the threat that the United States uh, might present and continue to present, had presented, right, continue to present to Mexican sovereignty. So in other words, interestingly, much like Cuba itself, Mexico is caught <clears throat> between a former and a future imperial power, mm. Right. So as different as Mexican Cuba are, I think, and I think when I talk about the interview that one Mexican Cuban journalist did with Porfirio Diaz, right, I, I talk about that. And I think well, maybe chapter four. Right. It really, you know, the, the, the dictator Porfirio Diaz admits as much, which is fascinating. Right. Cuban Mexico are actually in the same kind of rut or, pro, you know, problematic place in this kind of the geopolitics of the Gulf world. Um, so so essentially this this dilemma explains why. Um, there's a split in Mexico, right? So those most afraid of U.S. imperialism supported the pre preservation of Spanish colonialism in Cuba, regardless of how contradictory that might seem, because they worried that the U.S. would occupy and annex the island and then control the Gulf and, the, and fully surround Mexico, mm -hmm. right? It was not an unreasonable fear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the end, it turned out to be generally true. But... Um, but they found themselves in this difficult position of, of becoming defenders of Spanish colonialism, right? Um, and so dealing with that contradiction was quite complex. In contrast, then, those who were, who were more afraid of Spanish conservatism, of the rise of an influence of Spanish conservatism um, after Spain's conservative restoration, right, in Mexico, you know, they, which, which, Essentially, they they saw this kind of his, this pan hispanism that was rising as a kind of new kind of imperialism, right? And so they supported the Cuban independence struggle because they felt that the greatest threat to Mexico's future was not a U.S. invasion, but the dictatorship that had ravaged Mexico's democracy, right? So who was right, right? Within ten years of the Cuban struggle, Mexico would be torn apart by a political and social revolution that would claim over 1 million Mexican lives, mm -hmm. right? At the same time, the United States would invade Mexico twice during that same conflict, 
right? Right. So I everyone mean, if we're talking right. about just the, right in the immediate future. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that um, I found very intriguing towards the end of the book uh, that comes in and goes really almost fleetingly was this notion of Americanismo, mm-hmm. which you sort of put in opposition to Pan Americanism and Hispanismo. Mm-hmm. So what what is Americanismo, and why do you think it didn't take off as much as it as its proponents might have envisioned? Yeah. Oh, the first question is easier than the second. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I saw the term Americanismo used in the Mexican press during the 1890s, which is the period I focus on. Um, And then I saw it again sort of used by um, a Cuban writer who published a book in 1907 in Havana. And otherwise, I, I, I didn't. I didn't see it as an especially commonly used term in, in that iteration, right? The, the way, that particular, the word Americanismo. But I seized upon it because for me, it had and has the potential to move us beyond another binary, right? So historians and scholars that are interested in 19th century international relations and hemispheric history often or until recently, right, have fallen into this, into a trap of envisioning a stark opposition between pan-Hispanism and pan-Americanism. Uh, each one provides a different way of imagining the Americas, one dominated by Spain and one dominated by the United States. Mm-hmm. Right? So while Hispanists extolled the spiritual virtues of Spanish culture and denigrated the United States as culturally barbarous, right? Pan-Americanists vilified the Spanish as backward and retrograde while, lav- while lavishing praise on the United States and validating its self-proclaimed mandate to lead the hemisphere into the future, right? Mm-hmm. So clear, it's just too stark ideologies, right? But I suggest that these conceal a complicated, a more complicated history and a richer ideological terrain, right? And so Americanismo offers me a way to, to enrich that. And Americanismo was, was essentially both and neither at the same time, right? Um, those advocating for Americanismo were focused squarely on the Americas, not on the United States or Spain, right? Um, they understood Americanismo to be grounded in anti-imperialist, transnational, inter-American solidarity, in its broadest sense, right, which means it could, um, in contradistinction to say the, the sort of more harder line, a uh, later developed Latin Americanism or Latinoamericanismo, right, this could include or embrace, you know, U.S. Americans who might be in solidarity with the cause, um, you know, but but essentially, I think of, and I come to think of, I thought of by, the, by the time the, end, the the process of writing this book, right, to consider. Um, Americanismo, an uh, uh, understudied forerunner to anti-U.S. imperialist Latin Americanism of the 20th century, right? Because essentially it is the same ideology, but with the exception that its proponents had not quite given up on the United States yet. So what do you think um, the legacies of your book are? What are the legacies of the relationship between Cuba and Mexico apart from, and it's it's really true that if you put Fidel Castro at the sort of in the middle of this process, it's a very, it's a much more convincing story. If you have your story to think about, what are some other kinds of legacies? Yeah. Um, well, you first said the legacy of my book. Well, I don't know about that yet, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the legacy of the relationship between Cuba and Mexico, I mean, you know, like I said, I think we could go both, both forward and backward. And one of the things I think it's important to note at this point is that while this scholarship is, is, you know, there are a number of, of you know, I think one other uh, book, Renata Keller's book was, was you, you interviewed her about her work, right? So there are a number of scholars who are working on Cuba-Mexico connections right now. But in recent history within the United States, this hasn't been a robust area of scholarship. Um, but we only need to look across the Gulf, right? And to find, you know, robust scholarly communities in Cuba and Mexico that are doing this work and have been doing so since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think it's also really important for us um, to be, you know, really reading and, and engaged with, with the, you know, those of us who are thinking about, you know, who are doing in, uh, Mexican and Cuban history need to be engaged with those historiographies, right? Um, and I, th- I find there's just too much disconnect there. Uh, so thinking about that historiography, then, you know, I have seen, you know, great works of scholarship that take on the relationship between Cuba and Mexico as early as the early 1500s, right? So, you know, there's the opportunity to go way back, way back farther um, from my midpoint, you know, at the, at the, in, the, in the 19th century. Um, and then also great potential for the 20th century, which is where we have seen in the United States a number of really dynamic and, and, and exciting scholarly works um, see publication or, or are still in process, right? Um, but just sort of off the top of my, my head, I I mean, the, the, the clearest connection I saw, right, is that, you know, out of my story, which is the 1890s and sort of moves into the first decade of the 20th century, you know, my story really stops um, nearly at uh, the Mexican Revolution, which opens up a whole new period of study, right? Um, as I argue, Cuba becomes the sort of resonance chamber of the Mexican Revolution. We see hundreds upon hundreds of Cuban Mexican revolutionaries fleeing to Cuba, right? Re- reactionaries and revolutionaries of various stripes. You know, so, you know, again, the streets of Havana in the 1910s and, and you know, into the uh, 20s become these spaces of revolutionary activity and, um, you know, transnational exchanges and so forth. And I found that some of the same figures, Cuban figures that had been exiled in Mexico and returned home, then open up their homes and their workspaces, especially in the press, to starving uh, uh, you know, Zapatistas and Maderistas who um, find themselves in Havana without a dime in their pocket, right? And they remember how generous Mexicans were um, in Mexico City and Veracruz and other places to sort of really reach out and help them. And they, you know, they they find this great opportunity to to kind of pay that back. And so there's some really fantastic potential in the Mexican revolutionary era. You know, I found some really fascinating stories that, that go, that kind of reflect back on the Gulf world um, in terms of trajectories and movement, because you'll have Mexicans that want to re-enter Mexico, but instead of um, they'll, they'll exile to Cuba and instead of returning directly to Mexico, they'll migrate to the United States, right. And make their way to the Northern border, right. And then enter Mexico through the North because the center of the country is impassable, right? So it's like a whole nother geography for the revolution. That's fascinating. Um, and if we move past the 20s into the 30s and 40s and 50s, we can go back out to Veracruz and look at how Veracruz becomes a center for Cuban music, right? We can. There are a lot of neat people that are doing a sort of scholarship in um, uh, you know, cultural studies and literature that are looking at um, the connections and have long been looking at the connection, the cultural connections between Veracruz and Havana precisely in um, the the 20s and 30s and 40s and so forth that are really, you know, really neat. And of course, you know, we can bring our, you know, bring ourselves up to date there when with the 50s and with, um, you know, Mexico uh, becoming again a safe haven for revolutionaries, among them the famous Fidel and Che and so forth, right? And the story continues into the future past that point as well. Um, so I just think it's it's a fantastic and long intertwined history that just, um, you know, just is only beginning to really get the, the attention that I think it deserves. Yeah, it's super fascinating. I'm, I'm reminded of the story of Julio Antonio Mela, who was the founder yes. of the Communist Party, and of he course. ended up in Mexico with mm-hmm. Tina Madotti and mm-hmm. was killed. And so, I mean, that exactly. really puts all of that into a much longer trajectory. It's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That's the one 
very, very, very uh, excellent example that is also a bit understudied. I know of one or two scholars who are working on Maya right now and that mm-hmm. may be able to sort of highlight this particular aspect of, of, of his history, his time in Mexico. So, yeah. Yeah, super interesting. So, okay, we've taken up lots of your time. I just want to close <laughs> by asking you if you're working on something new. Is this uh, is a volume two in the works or are you working <laughs> on something else? <laughs> What's yeah, next? that's a great question. Um, well, I mean, I I had one of those experiences where you know, so as a young researcher, I I you know, my first year out in the archives in Cuba, I just collected everything, and then towards the end of sort of editing, going through the proofs in this book, I started to kind of just leaf through some of my old binders, and I literally, it seems almost cliche, but I literally found my next project <laughs> in a document I had just just copied by chance, um, and so. Uh, so I have two, um, one which will be much longer term and I have a lot less to say about, but, um, but so the first is, you know, I, I shudder to think of it as a volume two or a part two, but it may kind of be, be that. Um, so it's a look at citizenship in Cuba during the time of transition from the late Spanish colonial period through the U.S. occupation and into Republican statehood, right? So instead mm-hmm. of looking at these as distinct, right, I want to take something like a swath from like, you know, 1880 through 1910 or 19, uh, yeah, 1910 or so mm-hmm. as, as one integrated period. Um, and, and look at the, at issues and questions around citizenship, both Spanish citizenship, um, Cuban citizenship. And because Cubans, um, uh, on the ground are not entirely sure whether the United States is going to annex Cuba in the end, whether the U.S. Army is ever going to leave. Right. Um, you know, I find Cubans um, contemplating the possibility that they may have the opportunity to or be forced to take U.S. citizenship. So this period is a really interesting one of transition in which I think Cubans are sort of thinking about three different citizenships um, in in really, really fascinating ways. So that's just to sort of set the terrain. But I'm actually focusing on something even a little bit more, uh, a little bit both smaller and bigger at the same time and a little bit more tied to my own research trajectory, which is that I'm interested in the cases of Cuba, of, of Cuba, I don't know how to call them Cuban residents who refuse citizenship. Hmm. Um, and by contrast, Cubans who sought citizenship, but were denied it. Right. So these kind of two extremes. Um, and it all goes to the question of who, uh, who could become Cuban and what that meant. Um, and so I was excited to find, especially a number of petitions by native born Africans in 1900, 1901, 1902, who are resisting the state and attempting to refuse citizenship. Mm-hmm. Right. And when they're not refusing citizenship, reluctantly accepting citizenship and refusing national identification, right. Bluntly. Um, and I see this as a fascinating act of resistance that has sort of yet to be explored in depth. So I'm looking at those cases. At the same time, I'm looking at cases of refugees and exiles. So this now links up to my story, right? So these are those Cubans who actually, it's sort of what happens to them after the war, right? And so, you know, thousands of these people are stranded. Thousands of these people never return to Cuba after the war, despite efforts of even Cuban state officials under U.S. occupation to um, advocate for repatriation, right, to say, we owe a debt to these refugees, right? And they need to come back. 
Um, and the United States essentially closes the book on these people um, and, and, de- and decides to sort of just uh, refuse any responsibility for this problem. Um, so you have these heartfelt and desperate pleas and petitions that come in um, uh, to the Secretary of State. Um, in many cases, these people are saying, I fought for this war in exile. I lost my home. I lost my family. I had to leave. And then I dedicated myself to this cause. And now I'm destitute, poor. Uh, I cannot return. I want to be Cuban. I want to have my citizenship. I want to rebuild my country, right? But I can't. But but I can't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kind of dispossession, right, is is really, really, utterly fascinating. And so I'm trying to think about, you know, ways to put these two cases together and offer a kind of new, different vantage point on on uh, the formation of Cuban citizenship in particular in this kind of, in this in this period in which the Cuban Republic is, is in formation, especially under U.S. occupation. Um, so that's one. And then the other one is just a longer-term project, um, which will be a making of the Gulf world in the 18th and 19th centuries. And we can expect that to be a pretty big and ambitious book. <laughs> but an important one. I hope um, so. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, thank you so much, Alejandra.